Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Against the Stream. Welcome to everyone at home. Anybody here for the first time tonight? Welcome to the regular Monday night Sangha, community gathering. Um, I'd like to start, anyways, I'm happy to be back. I've been gone for the last, I missed the last three Mondays. Happy to be back with the community. Um, I'd like to start, at my, a big part of my motivation for having a meditation center is uh, to help you build community, help us build community. Yes, it's a place to learn meditation, to learn Buddhism, to practice together, but really to facilitate you meeting other meditators, people practicing Buddhism, uh, and developing those relationships. It's a core tenet of Buddhism to have Sangha, which is the word we translate for um, as, as community, as wise friendships, as, and it's central, it's important part of, of what we're doing, not to be... Uh, not to be done alone. Buddhism is not, not a solo endeavor. It's a, a group effort to be practiced in community. So in order to, in service of that, I like to ask you to talk to each other before we meditate and give you some kind of prompt. My prompt tonight, I'll give it to you and then you'll break into small groups and at home I'll put you in these breakout rooms on Zoom. And the prompt is, uh, how do you see the world? So just th think for a moment, like when you think about the world, you look out from your eyeballs at society, at the planet, at how do you see it? You know, like, you, you, you know, you have some immediate like, well, it's wonderful. What an amazing world we live in. Or like, it's pretty fucked. Look at all of this oppression and ignorance and self-centered fear-based humanity. Um, how do you see it? So talk to somebody you don't know about how you see the world. You can go into groups of two or three. Don't do big groups so that you get a couple of minutes to talk about, you know, how your mind, how your views, how your, you know, how you see the world. Is it, is it uh, a beautiful, wonderful, why can't we all just get along world? Or is it, you know, what, what do you see? What kind of discernment? Not, I'm not asking for your judgments, but what kind of like discernment do you see when you look at this world? Um, and at home, I'll throw you into some groups. So go ahead, find some people, talk to each other, get real. We'll talk a bit tonight after the meditation about how the Buddha saw the world and um, how, he encouraged, how he encouraged us to, to relate to the world in a way that ends suffering about the way things are. And I think on some level, the practice of meditation is the inquiry of uh, how do I see myself? So there's, it's so easy to, come up with like, oh, I see the world like this. And then we have some sense of like, oh, I see my mind or myself or my body or 
see myself like this and mindfulness in particular is asking us to bring non-judgmental awareness to how our mind works and what we experience in our emotions, our heart, our sensations. Not a judgment of uh, I'm good or I'm bad, or, but this is the environment that my mind creates. I wanna see it clearly. This is the uh, experience that my body, the sensations, the emotions, non-judgmental present time, investigative quality of mindfulness, which is to use the mind to inquire what's happening right now. What am I feeling? What am I thinking? Uh, sometimes we, I think people come to meditation with some idea that you're not supposed to think, no thoughts, a good meditation, total stillness, no activity where you know the buddha's encouragement is to use the mind to investigate uh, what's happening here what am i feeling what's what is my mind doing with the ultimate uh goal of understanding that uh, none of it's all that personal or your fault that uh, it's just this is the human condition this is the human condition where everything is constantly changing, impermanent, unreliable, unsubstantial un, uh, because of the reality of constant change. And so we're using meditation to see that and to understand. To, this is the, the definition of insight or of wisdom, understanding the impermanent, the impersonal and uh, unsatisfactory or unreliable nature of our own mind of our own body, of our own self, what we call me, I. Uh, how do you see yourself? And um, all of us lowly, unenlightened beings uh, don't see ourselves clearly. We, are, we see ourselves through a lens of delusion, of self-centered confusion. You know, the, whatever opinion you have of yourself, almost certainly wrong. <laughs> almost certainly. Because we don't, we don't, we're not, we don't have that awakened ability to see uh, the, the full truth of who we are and what is unfolding here. And this is why we meditate. This is meditation brings us closer and closer to seeing what is true, the Dharma, what is true about this human experience. So we'll meditate together, find a way to sit that's upright, relaxed. As you're ready, allowing your eyes to be closed, making any adjustments necessary to find a posture that feels sustainable, even if you may experience some discomfort, that's okay. Learning to tolerate, have compassion for discomfort. Settling in and softening, releasing 
letting go of any unnecessary tension in your face or shoulders or chest or belly, any of those places in your body that get tight, tight with resistance, with holding on or suppressing. Try to soften it, let, let go open So the sensations and emotions, thoughts and feelings that are here now. With each exhale, softening into the present time, awareness of the body, sitting, breathing. Letting go of the past and future as we direct our full attention to the present here. Just this breath as it enters the nostrils. Just this breath as it exits. In order to see the mind clearly, our experience clearly, it's helpful to bring an attitude of friendliness, of kindness. Kind awareness of the body, kind awareness of the mind, whether it's agitated or calm kind or unkind, be friendly towards the unkind thoughts rather than adversarial or resisting. Bring a sense of tenderness, friendliness towards your mind, no matter what it does.
keep it quite simple in the beginning, just anchoring your attention with the breath, the body. Let the thoughts float by in the background. Trying to stop the mind. Let the mind do whatever it wants. Don't try to control it. But also don't get too involved in the plans. And the hope, the fear, the desires that the mind produces. Just let them be in the background. Reorient to hear, sitting, breathing, over and over.
What are you paying attention to right now? Is it a thought, a plan? Is it a sensation? Name it. This is just thinking, feeling. Rising and passing of sense impressions in the mind and the body. You can choose to keep it simple with the body, first foundation, or begin to open to investigating the mind, observing the impermanent nature of thought, the process, thoughts appearing, proliferating, and dissolving at some point, the thought ends, perhaps to re-arise.
mindfulness begins to reveal that it's not what's happening that is causing suffering or happiness, but how we are responding, how we're relating to the mind, the body, to pleasure, pain. Mindfulness begins to change our way we see ourselves, how reactive, begin to respond with more compassion to our own pain by turning towards it. Allowing ourselves to feel it.
meet yourself with as much kindness, acceptance, compassion as you can in this moment. And meet this world, each other, with as much kindness, acceptance, and compassion as you can in this moment. The intention to respond with empathy and compassion to the suffering both internal and external. Spending the last couple of minutes radiating loving kindness in all directions to all living beings with the simple wish, may all beings be at ease. May all beings be free from suffering, the suffering of greed and hatred and delusion. Extending this wish in all direction to include all sentient beings. Remember to include yourself in the all, not others, but all of us, including this mind, body, heart that you're experiencing right now. May we all do what needs to be done. see clearly and respond wisely to ourselves and to each other.
my sense of the Buddha's view of the world is um, he, he called this world, this realm that we're experiencing samsara, the Buddhist word for planet Earth as we know it, samsara. Samsara means uh, a realm of perpetually wandering from uh, one form of suffering to the next. Perpetual wandering from one realm of clinging, craving, aversion, anger, resentment, fear. And then we're just in this cycle. Um, the unenlightened reality for, for us is a lot of dukkha, the first noble truth, suffering, difficulty. And that it can become, um, feels like almost unbearable without learning to respond, depending on your particular life's experiences and and I project mine, <laughs> um, but it can at times feel so painful that it's like, how do I even bear this? How do I tolerate my own mind? Or this world that, you know, my mind suffers about. So here in samsara, there are three forces, three, the, the three, sometimes called the three poisons, the three uh, core causes of unhappiness, of suffering, of that make it so challenging to be happy here. And um, I think they're all just the, you know, boil down to uh, our survival instinct, just evolutionary biology has created a situation where we're born into a body that uh, experiences this poison, it's called, of craving, repetitive almost constant, isn't your desire, craving, wanting, seeking mind, just almost all day, every day, your mind saying, you know, this is all right, but it could be better. Even when it's good, the craving is still there. Even when it's like, yeah, this is pretty good, but I could make it better. It should be better or it should last longer. And that just natural human, you know, samsaric reality of, uh, we call it greed. Maybe when you thought of yourself tonight, I wonder like when you thought of the world, I asked you when we started, you know, what do you, how do you see the world? Do you see the world as greedy? As a realm of greed? right, with our billionaires and our, geez. but do you see yourself as greedy? 
Do you see your cravings as, right? Greed feels like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to own that. <laughs> I don't want to take that on. Like, oh yeah, I'm constantly experiencing greed for pleasure. Craving sounds a little bit like, oh, okay, I'll take that. Great craving, yeah. Desire, I can, that, yeah, that doesn't sound too bad. But greed feels like this uh, mortal sin, right? It's like, oh no, that's, I don't want to acknowledge that my own mind and body are lusting and greeting for pleasure all the time. And that it's not intentional. You didn't, you know, like what, you know, it's like, no, we didn't wake up in the morning and be like, you know, I'm going to just experience greed for pleasure all day today. That's what I'm going to do. It's not like we made a decision at some point in our life of like, I'm going to be a self-centered, greedy, craving machine. It's just, you know, the Buddha, it's just the way it is. It's not, it's not your, and this is, I love this part of Buddhism and I'm always, uh, saying it, reminding us that um, greed and hatred and delusion is what's happening here in samsara. And not just out there. It's not just the greedy billionaires or the oppressors or the, it's not just them that is the, you know, greed, hate. It's here in us, in all of us. It's part of humanity. I'm going to go do a little tangent aside. Just got back from traveling in, I uh, went to Bali in Indonesia. And I love uh, getting out of the United States. Um, and I try, my life, I've been really fortunate, privileged to get to travel quite a bit. And because I can, I can kind of sometimes get a little bogged down into like it's America's the problem. Like what a fucked society we live in. But then it's so good to go to other places and especially like when I've gone to Buddhist countries and I can remember the first time I went to the Buddhist countries and you know, when I was in my twenties and with this idea of like, well, you know, like they know the truth. Like we're fucked because Christianity, that's the problem, you know, like capitalism, Christianity, like that's the problem. Be, you know, then going to a Buddhist country and being like they, you know, they, they have the Dharma, like there's monks everywhere. They have the Dharma and seeing like, oh, wow, they're just as fucked as us. Some even worse in some ways, like a little bit more progressive equality in some ways in the States than there are in a lot of the other societies. And so for, so for me, I always feel like it's so good to, to get out and, uh, and wake up to like, this isn't a national issue. It's a human issue. And this is the, you know, the Buddha's teaching um, that this isn't about India. And he said a lot of things about India because that was his culture. And it was a racist, sexist, homophobic, greed-based culture just like ours. <laughs> so he said a lot of things, about his, but he also was, he was just talking about humanity, that this is the human condition and humans create this in every society. 
and worse in some than others and more exaggerated sexism or more exaggerated racism or more exaggerated greed, capitalism on steroids, you know. But every time you get a bunch of humans together, they're gonna fuck it up. They're gonna create a government and they're gonna create corruption. They're gonna create religion. Oh God, like but religion such a problem on this planet, including Buddhism, such a problem. So much ignorance in the name of hierarchical power of religion. So much greed, so much attachment <laughs> to views and I'm right, you're wrong. Even in Buddhism, in Buddhist uh, sex arguing with each other for centuries now about who understands emptiness the best. <laughs> My understanding of the impersonal nature of things is way better than your understanding of the impersonal nature of things. So that, that um, dilemma that we're in, where we're born into this world and we look around and experience all of the craving, repetitive, second noble truth, repetitive craving for sense pleasures. And it's not, um, pleasure's not the problem. Pain's not actually the problem. It's the... Uh, truth that everything's impermanent and that it's the repetitive clinging. And there's this beautiful proposal, Buddha, you know, I love the way the Buddha lays it out. And he's like, yep, there's all this suffering and you're in this realm of greed and hatred and delusion. And you're experiencing this repetitive experience of clinging and craving and aversion. And it's not your fault, but it's the way it is. And there's an intervention. And you can do something about it. It's possible. You're not just fucked, right? It, what, what a bummer that would be. of being like, yeah, it's just a realm of greed, hatred, and delusion. No solution. You're fucked. I feel like, I feel like one of the reasons that I was so drawn to Buddhism is because my kind of rebellious punk rock ethics where like, yeah, I get the greed, hatred, delusion. The, you know, I see the world as fucked. And it wasn't until I came to the Dharma that I was like, oh, and there's a solution. Not just pointing out the problem. The punks are right. <laughs> but they very rarely get around to, we can do something from the inside, not just out there, the greedy, eat the rich attitude, not just them, but this is in me. And from the inside out, I can free myself from greed, from hatred, from delusion. There's a solution, third noble truth. It's possible in this lifetime through our own effort to train the mind so thoroughly that we are no longer reacting 
with the clinging, the craving, the self-centered, I, me, mine, delusional, seeing ourselves through this confused lens, seeing the world through this, and that this simple mindfulness practice, present time awareness, turn towards, stop running, sit still, shut up, and look at your own mind. And the look at your own mind is really important. How often are we using meditation to just ignore our minds all of the time? There's a whole term that the, mostly the Western teachers have come up with of uh, spiritual bypassing. Rather than using the Dharma as the Buddha taught it, which is turn towards, see clearly, using meditation to turn away from to ignore, to bypass the causes of suffering rather than sitting in them and turning towards them and learning to be with our pain rather than using meditation as another way to crave avoidance. I just want to feel good. I want to meditate this shit away. I didn't come here to suffer. I came here to avoid that shit. But the way that the Buddha lays it out is the, the way to end suffering is by turning towards it, being with it, facing it, seeing it's the clinging, it's the craving, it's not what's happening. It's how we're responding to what's happening. And the untrained mind doesn't have much ability to be compassionate towards our own pain or really the pain of others. And that's why we meditate. We have to train the mind. That, that uh, term the Buddha calls, first he kind of disparagingly talks about himself. He says, when I was just a lowly, unenlightened bodhisattva and, you know, before I knew you know, I was just seeking this term bodhisattva, um, clinging to views and opinions. And he, uses, he says, you know, these untrained worldlings, people who are not awakened, are not, haven't thoroughly trained their mind. Worldling meaning seeking our happiness from material and sensual source. Keeping the world as hostage. If I only had the right relationship, if I only had enough money, if I only had enough, whatever it, it is, external source, then I'd be happy. That's a, you know, so you can have the humility to be like, yep, I'm a worldling. <laughs> I still think that way. I still think that there's got to be some material solution to my happiness. He said, uh, you know, and that, that is just a lack of having trained our minds thoroughly enough to totally understand that it's just not the case. I often reflect on um, the blessing it is to have gotten everything you wanted. I don't know if any of you are there. Occasionally, I have some students that come through and say, I got everything I wanted and it didn't fucking work. 
if you haven't gotten everything you wanted yet, it's easy to stay in that delusion of like, yeah, but I'd be happy if I got everything I wanted. <laughs> I'm convinced that I would, you know, it worked for me. So it's so, uh, I hope you get everything you want so that you can see that it won't work. so that you can wake up to, there's no material, sensual, external solution to this human condition. Now, you don't have to waste, you know, we don't have to waste our lives chasing, uh, uh, you know, something that's not gonna work. You, you, there's a part of you that knows that that's true. Hopefully, I hope there's a part of you that you hear that and you're like, I, even though my mind tells me differently, <laughs> there's some part of my heart that knows that that's true. That there's not an external material sensual source of sustainable well-being. And that it's, that's why we're meditating. That's why we're looking for an internal transformation, not an external goal. That having been said, you know, I was asked the question a couple a few months ago about like, well, what do we do about our ambition and our goals and our, you know, and my sense, my experience is uh, go for it. Go for your goals and your ambition and your career and your relationships, like go for all of it with the wisdom that it's not going to work, <laughs> but do it anyways. 100%, get the job, have the relationship, do the, all of it with the internal knowing that it's not a reliable refuge. It's just a job. And relationship can be incredibly healing and you know, uh, an opportunity for probably more growth than anything. But the idea that like, a relationship's going to just make you happy. <laughs> and your mind, all of our minds tell us that, right? Like, oh, I just, if I was just in love with the right person and they were in love with me. A lot of work, a lot of healing, a lot of suffering <laughs> to be done in even the healthiest relationships. So the Buddha sees the world as samsara, greed, hatred, delusion. Not only that, but that that is the strongest current, the stream. And so like when you think of mainstream, like, you know, our sangha tends to be a little like counterculture alternative, you know. But when you think of mainstream, the world, Mainstream America, greed, hatred, <laughs> delusion, corporate, political, greed and ignorance. And again, not just America, Indonesia, Thailand, India, Africa, everywhere, not just us. And he uses the term 
said in this world of human greed and hatred and delusion, uh, we have to go against the stream. Patiso Tagami is the Pali, the Buddhist word that translates as either against uh, the current, the strongest current, the current that causes suffering for us is the clinging, the aversion, the, I, the that this biology of self-centeredness. Your mind thinks about itself most of the time. And it's not your fault. It's just what the human mind does. It creates a sense of self, sense of permanent I, me, mine, and ego self. And he says the nirvana, freedom, awakening, true sense of ease and well-being is by going against the greed, against the hatred, against the self-centeredness. And we have these tools and it's not just like, yeah, go. It's here is the eightfold path. Here is the importance of community. I was thinking about and it, the stream as the, this, this analogy and, and uh, you know, the Buddha saying like, okay, go against the stream. And us being like, well, how the fuck do I do that? And he says, well, first you need a vehicle, a boat. And uh, on some level, I feel like the Sangha is the boat. We need like together, we get together. You need that critical mass to be in the stream together. And that it's, that's part of the vehicle is us together. You don't do it all by yourself. We get together. And then, um, but again, like, the, like if we were just together and we didn't have the meditation instructions and the precepts, you know, the renunciation and the meditation instructions, we'd still just be a mess. <laughs> together floating downstream. Like how many times have you been part of communities that didn't have a lot of tools? It's freezing in here. We can turn the AC off. Would you do it, Joe? Yeah. I see people bundling up. I run hot, but I'm getting cold too. So thinking of the Sangha as this sort of raft. Maybe it's the Dharma, the teachings that are traditionally thought of as the raft, but that's the I don't know, for me, community seems so much of like what allows me to, to continue to show up and connect and, and um, make some incremental progress up against the stream, upstream. And then the meditative training, I was thinking of like, you know, we have two main paddles, like, okay, you gotta go upstream and you've got the container and uh, one paddle is mindfulness, is wisdom. Mindfulness leads to wisdom. And maybe I, I tend to think that on some level, uh, maybe mindfulness is enough. If you truly are mindful of your pain and you use mindfulness not as a bypass, but as turning towards, it will lead to compassion. Mindfulness will lead to compassion. Mindfulness will lead to non-attachment. 
and, an, and a sense of appreciation, appreciative joy. Mindfulness will lead to uh, loving kindness and to uh, equanimity. So on some level, you could go, you know, like, what is that? Like a canoe where you just have one paddle? <laughs> I don't know. Kayak? I don't know. Kayak. Okay. <laughs> Trying to use some boating analogies and not really familiar with. When we were in Bali, we went rafting and we all had a paddle. And I've been rafting a couple of times where there's just the, the, you know, one person with the two paddles. But it's so much better when you like have people paddling on both sides of the boat. <laughs> and so my sense is like, you can make mindfulness work all by itself. And if you look at the Eightfold Path, the Buddha says, you know, here's the understand the way it is. Make sure that your intentions are in line with non-harming, with, um, you know, your actions are practice some renunciation, careful with your karma, your speech, your actions, your livelihood. And he says, here's the meditation instructions and it's mindfulness, mindfulness and concentration, sati and the panya, the, the wisdom that will come from present time, non-judgmental investigative awareness with a, that will lead to kindness. And then later in the Buddha's, that was all he put in the Eightfold Path. And then as he started teaching, then he started teaching loving kindness as a meditation, forgiveness, compassion. And it's like, okay, yeah, you can get there with one oar, but actually if you have two paddles, way better. And so I see the heart practices, the practice of forgiveness, the practice of compassion, of loving kindness, of training the mind to be kind rather than just observing it actually creating the neuropathways of kindness as a very important tool in going against the greed and hatred and delusion of this human condition and of this world. So the Buddha's encouragement and, and, um, and the tools that were offered, we have it, it's all here. My experience is, um, I was once asked, is anything missing from Buddhism for you? That's an interesting thing to think about. Some people say, yeah, maybe a little bit more sense of the divine or, you know, like whatever it is for you. Some people have feel like others. Oh, a little, a little too rational or something. <laughs> I could use a little more mystical in my spiritual path or sacred feminine. And I'd like more sacred feminine, something like what's missing for you. All I could come up with, and this is a long time ago, 20 something years ago, was the only thing that I could come up with was that I, I feel like there's not enough in the explicit teachings about the importance of having a sense of humor. Having a fucking sense of humor about this task and this existence and this, you know, it's so easy when you're suffering a lot to get way too, and when you're trying to be spiritual, to get way too 
serious and finding that balance of like, yeah, I want to take this very seriously. And let's also laugh at ourselves a bit. Let's, you know, let's, let's lighten up a little bit. Don't get too tied down to being identified with I'm so spiritual. Fart jokes are funny. <laughs> What's that saying of like, it's, it's not funny. If you don't have a sense of humor, it's not funny. <laughs> something, something like that. But I, I felt like when I looked at Buddhism, that was it. More humor. Everything else feels like it's right there. And some scholars who you know, know the suttas really well, I think Juan, you and I maybe talked about this at some point, say, you know, there's a whole bunch of places if you read the suttas where the Buddha is sort of making jokes. It's not, he never says, you know, have a sense of humor, but where he's kind of, you know, being a little, um, you know, using analogies that are funny. Uh, that I find it so so thick, the, the, the scriptures and the archaic language that they're translated into, that I don't find them funny at all. But I guess it's in there somewhere. So we're here on this uh, process together, and the, the Sangha has a container as a boat as a vehicle and we have the teachings and we have the mindfulness practice and um, you have to do it all yourself we all have to do our own meditation practice nobody can do it for us we can't do it um, and you have these paddles and the thing about like being uh you know on a river and trying to go against the stream against the current is it's gonna take a lot of effort you know, and it's, you know, like the paddling you did yesterday isn't going to make any progress for you today, right? It's a kind of like sustainable, constant, like, yep, got to keep paddling, keep mindfulness right now, mindfulness right now, forgiveness again and again and again. And it's a, a effort, a sustainable effort that has to become our lives, not just something we do on Monday nights not just something that we occasionally go and do on a retreat, but that becomes the way that we see the world through more and more lens of, of compassion, the intention to be kind, to be generous, to be loving, to be present, to take full responsibility for our reactions, and to really understand this core of, of the philosophy, which is that happiness and unhappiness is not created by what's happening. It's created by how we're responding to what's happening. And that's a high teaching, high goal. It's a lot of responsibility. I think that there's some humility necessary, especially in early stages of practice, um, in all stages, but where, you know, the, the idea that like, oh, I could just be non-reactive and therefore not suffer in this situation. Although it's true, we can't fucking do it yet. And that's the reality. Yes, if I had compassion for all living beings, I wouldn't be suffering, but I don't yet 
if I, you know, didn't believe that my mind was right most of the time, I wouldn't suffer so much. But I do believe that my mind is right most of the time. So I create all kinds of suffering for myself. Not there yet, that humility to say like, yep, the Dharma resonates. I want to be there. I want to be as free as I can be. And I'm not there yet. I, I don't have perfect, non-reactive, compassionate response yet. But I'm going to keep meditating because I want to get there. I want to get closer and closer to having the ability to, no matter what happens in my mind or in the world, respond wisely to it, not suffer at it. And my experience is that it works slowly, gradually, we get better at it. We develop the skill, we uncover the wisdom, however you want to talk about it. Against the stream, Sangha is the boat. Mindfulness is a paddle. Heart practices are a paddle. Uh, the five precepts, the renunciation, I don't know, let's make it the rudder. I don't know, something. It's also a necessary part of the vehicle of the boat. We need uh, some level of renunciation about how we speak and how we behave. Uh, there's the analogy that somebody used that I used to attribute to the Buddha, but I don't think it's in the suttas. And they, they said, um, you know, there are people who are really good meditators, meditate their ass off, sit there for hours, perfect posture, fucking beautiful meditator, but they're not very ethical. And that trying to get to liberation without an ethical, karmic, you know, way of being is like trying to go, you know, upstream while you're still tied to the dock. You can meditate all day, every day, but if you're still lying and cheating and stealing, you're not going to get free. So the behavior renunciation in conjunction with the wisdom and compassion that come from the formal meditation practice. So we have a few minutes if there's questions, comments, anything specific about, this is one of those general paths, uh, general teachings about the path and about um, normalizing that uh, if you see this world as quite confused, you're not wrong. You know, that from the Buddhist perspective, this is a very confused world and that that's normal and that uh, being human is, is fucking confusing. And that we have these practices to clear away the confusion. Please. Um, my name's Dana. Nice to see you. Uh, just in the spirit of renunciation, in comparison to other uh, programs or religions or practices, how mm. has been helpful in leaning into the idea of from this moment forward, rather than this um, this repentance that is practiced in the alternative. 
I like the question. Let me see if I can repeat it for um, the people at home that might not have been able to hear it. The question is, um, how, how is Buddhism um, in the spirit of renunciation um, handle the kind of unskillfulness or suffering of the past, um, maybe in a different way than some of the, you know, other traditions, you know, Judeo-Christian, Islamic, whatever, uh, where there's some sort of repentance and like guilt. Um, and does, you know, maybe not completely, but is, is there some of that in Buddhism or how does Buddhism? How do you apply Buddhism to yeah. like that to like kind of remove guilt yeah. and lean into from this moment forward? Yeah. There's a, you know, I mean, so much of mindfulness is this moment. So in the practice itself, there's a lot of let go of the past. Be here now, as they say, <laughs> as the dude said, be here now. Let go of the past. But you can't stop your mind from, be, you know, reflecting and feeling the guilt or shame or, you know, there's no encouragement in Buddhism to beat yourself up about the past, but there is an acknowledgement that your mind's going to do that some. And when it does it, have compassion for that confused mind state. See it as a painful mind state. Don't feed it. Don't, there's no, uh, but there's a kind of a realistic view that like, of course, you know, your mind's going to give you a hard time about the past. It's going to rehash it. So present time awareness is a tool to cut through. Don't spend too much time back there. But I also feel like compassion and forgiveness is a way to uh, help us process and, and uh, maybe even resolve some of the past. Huh? And, you know, the process of um, forgiving ourselves and forgiving others, which takes so much of the fuel out of the mind's tendency to live in the regret. But there is some level in Buddhism of a healthy sense of regret for when we have caused harm. We don't, uh, don't want to bypass the feelings of regret that we have by saying here and forward only, and the past is gone. That's not me, you know, actually processing it. It's not, it's, those are thoughts and feelings and they're here. So to meet them with forgiveness, to meet them with compassion, to meet ourselves and others from the past with compassion that helps resolve and helps um, take the fuel out of that. Because my experience is that when I try to ignore the pain of the past, it keeps fucking knocking on the door. And I can just, oh, here, here, here. Let me, but that when I actually say, okay, okay, come, all right, come in, come in guilt and shame and loathsomeness and, you know, self recrimination and or whatever, like, let's sit together. Let's let it in. The, the Tibetans talk about, you know, our demons the dragons of our, the demons in our life, um, you know, you can keep shutting the door on them and trying to bypass them. Or at some point you just have to say, invite the demons in for tea, which is always the past at some level. 
the pain that we've experienced or the fear. So Buddhism, yes, here, now, but sometimes what's here right now is a whole bunch of grief. That's from past experience and it's here now, or a whole bunch of guilt that's from the past and it's here now and it's calling for some compassion and forgiveness as much as we can in this moment. And move forward, you know, and one, there's some saying about karma, I think I'm gonna botch it, but there's some saying about karma that's something like, um, you wanna understand the karma of your past, look at your present experience. And if you wanna look into the future and know what you're moving forward, your future is gonna be like, look at your present actions. Because it's how we are responding now that is going to create our future sense of well, you know, present here and now sense of well-being, but also karmic momentum to more freedom. Does that mostly, yeah, address it? Don't completely shut the door on the past, but don't wallow in it and don't, you know, forgiveness is a core part of our practice. And it doesn't take long meditating to see like, I can't stop my mind from dredging up the shit from the past. I can't stop my mind from planning. I can choose how I relate to those thoughts when they arise and I'm aware of them, but I can't control the mind and just be like, um, you know, you, past, you're dead to me. Good luck with that. It's going to keep coming back and, you know, turn into a demon until you. It's an interesting practice that Sultram Alione um, does. She's a female Western Lama uh, called Feeding Your Demons, where you visualize that stuff. So, and it's almost always from, from the past and you turn it into this demon and then you feed it the nectar of your own being and you offer, it's a really interesting surrender to it and it can take all of the power out of it and be a real sort of trauma resolution meditation. Quite interesting. Yeah, difficult. We did a couple of retreats together where we were doing like refuge recovery and, and um, feeding your demons and you know it can really stir people up a lot but it also can be really beneficial please eric um i'm eric i you mentioned that um different sects Buddhism. Um, i'd imagine they're all from the same trunk just branched out mm -hmm. and um i'm curious is any of those sects or any form of buddhism believe in it higher power and if that's not the case can you explain why yeah um the answer is yes and i i would actually say that my sense of og siddhartha gautama early buddhism is that it's uh, pretty non-theistic and it's not that he doesn't believe in higher powers he talks about angels and higher powers and there's even this sort of one of the gods that comes to him to convince him to teach 
So there's, there's a, there is some of that in the Theravada, but there's a core sense of like, they're, they're there, the higher powers are there, but they're also part of samsara and the higher powers are also suffering. And um, sometimes the Buddha is called the teacher of gods and humans and men, humans. Because there's all these stories about like, he has to go and like teach the gods about compassion because like the Western gods that are wrathful and jealous, I'm a wrathful and jealous God. He's like, you know, God, you don't need to suffer either. You don't need to be wrathful and jealous and attached and fucking smiting people and shit. Like, be loving, be non-attached, God. So there are some of those, but there's a kind of a, my sense is that there's a skepticism about the God's abilities to really intervene in human happiness. He puts so much more emphasis on it. He's like, yeah, maybe they're there, but really you got to do your own non-attachment. The gods got their own problems. They're not going to do it for you. You know, and coming from that Hindu polytheistic, not just one creator God that's the God of love or the God of smiting or whatever, but all of the, you know, there's Vishnu and there's Krishna and there's Hanuman and there's all of these, you know, polytheistic gods and um, they're around. And, um, but he kind of has a much more humanist perspective. So that's one piece. I know I'm going over I'll end in a minute. Um, the other piece is that as Buddhism has developed I, I would say actually most Buddhists te- treat the Buddha like a God, like their higher power. And they're praying to Buddha and have um, turned him into a higher power. And then there's certain sects of Buddhism, like um, what is the, uh, what's the sect one where the, um, uh, they believe that there's a um, Tushita heaven. It's not the Tibetans, but the, the form of like Chinese, Japanese Buddhism, where they actually, uh, Amitabha. Oh yeah, that, that eventually became Pure Land. Pure Land Buddhism. Pure Land Buddhism that really feels like there is a kind of Buddha God that will kind of come back and there'll be like a second coming and Maitreya Buddha will come and then we'll all get enlightened because the Buddha is going to, you know, very sort of like second coming of Christ kind of, perspective but buddhist it's like a heaven heaven yeah and so it's very you know and like um the 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 folks that chant the sogo sgi uh nam yoho rengikyo like that that you will get blessings like your your prayers your chants will be answered so there's in buddhism there's buddhist theism I was one time wearing my Buddhist atheist shirt and this young Asian woman who had grown up Buddhist uh, was really offended. She's like, Buddhism's not atheist. My family and my parents, like we pray to the Buddhas and, you know, the Buddhist gods and we're not atheists. We're Buddhist theists. So for sure in Buddhism, there is a sense of that. Um, And my sense of early Buddhism is that it's non-theistic. He's saying, like, yeah, the gods are there. You still got to do your work. The closer you are to the Theravada, you know, yeah. when you look at a historical regression, the theism comes much later. Yeah. And it's usually an offshoot of the Mahayana tradition. Yeah. You know, 
I mean, I kind of appreciate the middle ground where, you know, well, it's still a Theravada point of view where we have heavenly realms, hell realms, and they got their problems. They're too busy to work on your shit, <laughs> you know, to work on your shit. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Sorry for going five minutes over tonight. Um, <clears throat> see you next week. Last, you know, uh, announcement. There's a couple of things coming up. There's a Against the Stream seven-day silent meditation retreat in October here in Southern California, up near Big Bear, up in the mountains. Uh, registration is open for that. Please join us if you can. I'm, I'm working on um, raising some scholarship money. So a few people have been asking if they can come even though they can't afford it. So I'm working on it, not yet, but I'm working on raising some money for scholarships. Um, and everything that we do here and the, the, our ability to be the, the vehicle, the raft um, is uh, from your support. You know, we're a nonprofit organization. Obviously, we don't charge to come to the class on Zoom. We don't charge to walk in the door. Uh, and it's, you know, supported by your generosity and your freely offered support of Against the Stream. And, um, you know, our expenses are a few grand a month, you know, to pay the rent and to pay the web person and to pay the social media person and for there to be a little bit left over to pay me and support me and my teaching. Um, you know, it takes a bunch of money. So be as generous as you can be and know that you're welcome here, whether you're, if you're broke, don't worry, come, you're welcome to be here. If you're not broke, pitch in to keep this thing going and support it and, and um, you know, let us continue to exist. We've, we've existed, you know, I've been teaching this Monday night class in, on the west side of Los Angeles for 17 years and we're still here. Um, but it's because people keep helping. So uh, do what you can. There's a bowl at the front desk for cash donations. There's a, um, uh, a QR code for the PayPal or the Venmo donations. And um, thank you for your generosity. May any goodness that comes from our practice be shared outward in all directions with all living beings. May each one of us get as free as possible. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.